Welcome back to Fishnets and Philosophy. This is your host, Mick Spell Marrigan. And once again, we are embarking on a journey into exploring the question, why horror? Where each week, myself and a different guest do our best to unpack this fun question. So this week, I am joined by london and before we jump into this discussion if you could just kind of introduce yourself what it is that you do and i guess your own kind of personal connection to horror sure thanks for having me i am london saint juniper um i am a burlesque and sideshow performer i do a lot of horror lesque and gore lesque i love fake blood um i also have a phd in victorian literature focusing on the gothic and representations of gender so i come at this as a fan a lifelong fan um as a little bit of a scholar and as a performer what a brilliant trifecta of different things to approach horror from. That's so cool. And just what an amazing PhD to have a PhD in like <laughs> Gothic literature through gender. I'm just like, I'm already just like, okay, I like this person. I'm applauding. <laughs> brilliant. Um, but with these discussions, I always like to kick it off with this first question because every horror fan has an answer to it. And I just love hearing the different films that people give. So for you, what was the first horror film that you remember watching? And then slightly adjacent, because sometimes these answers can be different. What was the horror film that made you a fan of horror? So I first, the first horror film I ever saw was Child's Play. Mm. Um, when I was eight years old and like snuck watching it at an older neighbor's house and um, it scarred me for life. Uh, My mother collected porcelain dolls on my behalf. Mm. Uh, I was never really a fan of dolls myself, but after that film, I've never trusted dolls or speaking Mm -hmm. ever again. I think I first fell in love with the genre when I was... 12 or so and saw Candyman Mm. and the Amityville Horror those were sleepover favorites and I was hooked after that nice and actually that's actually really interesting as well that like Candyman was one of those I guess influential ones for you because just as we mentioned as you mentioned at the outset you know you do have a PhD in gothic literature and as a film Candyman really kind of has that I don't know gothic element to it even though it's a very modern day storyline it has that just I don't know maybe it's just Tony Todd brought that extra gravitas (laughs) to it but it just has it feels like a gothic story despite it being set in like you know the ghettos of Detroit um but yeah no that's they're they're really great like kind of formative films I like those lists of films that you gave me but um I like that mention when he said like you know Child's Play was the one that you first saw both kind of scarred you but also that you had snuck out to see it because Mm -hmm. as I've been having these discussions for this series 
Like I'm definitely discovering that, you know, it, this would be like great research data, but I'm definitely <laughs> discovering that it's like 50-50, either someone who loves horror had like a guiding hand in a parental figure or a sibling that's kind of just been like, I'm going to introduce you to the wonderful world of horror. Or it's more of like an act of, I guess, rebellion or something like that, that someone's like, I'm going to watch this because I've been told I can't. And yeah, it's really interesting seeing where people approach horror from. It's really fascinating. Um, yeah, I like those list of films. They're, they're really nice ones. Um, actually, just that mention as well, because this actually kind of brings up one of the questions I had. Um, but the fact that, you know, you were eight watching Child's Play, and like it's something that I think a lot of horror fans are noticing and you can see it being talked in the online spaces and stuff like that but like it feels like there aren't as like I guess little kids aren't being scared as much anymore with the media we're watching like in the sense that like you know even horror like it's like horror films seem to be being made specifically for adults or there might be some films that are in the kind of 15 region but like for younger there isn't really much like films that are veering towards no no it's a good thing to be scared and the reason I kind of touch touch on this is because I've noticed as a broader thing and like I don't know if it's just me noticing it or if it's actually happening but to me it feels like across the board a lot of our kind of media both films and tv and stuff like that Mm -hmm. feel very sanitized and in some ways even almost like desexualized compared to like media that I had growing up with mm-hmm. and it feels like horror is still refusing to go down that route but I want to know what you think about that do you think that there is this kind of broader I guess sanitization of media or maybe am I just I guess t- too much of a sexual being that everything feels sanitized because it's not <laughs> what I'm picking up on <laughs> I, I don't think that things are being sanitized um of course I say that as a horror fan Mm. I say that as someone who reads a lot of smut Mm. um someone who kind of seeks out content that is definitely not sanitized um but also I'm a mom I have preteens and so that same kind of age group that you were just talking about I think what's happening is that they are consuming different media than I was consuming as a child. So two of my three children, um, my 12-year-old and my 14-year-old are obsessed with horror, but they don't watch horror movies. They don't read horror novels. They play horror video games. Mm. Um, And they're very invested in the kind of creepy pasta online culture. Mm. So whereas I was reading, you know, Alvin Schwartz's Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, that was my first introduction to horror when I was seven years old. Mm. Um, they're reading about Slender Man and all these other characters and they're playing Five Nights at Freddy's and these other horror games and they're telling ghost stories themselves and they're creating um some, you know, pretty terrifying content actually. Mm but they don't have the same relationship to film that I had. Interesting. So it's more participatory horror than, um, you know, perhaps just consumer horror. That's a really interesting um, window that I hadn't even kind of, I guess, because I don't have kids. I don't have young, <laughs> you know, like I'm not in that kind of, I guess, always online generation. Like, you know, I kind of like, you know, 
was there before the internet was really a thing so it's like I remember kind of like that's where I was kind of growing up so even though pretty much all my life the internet has been there there was a section that it wasn't so you know I don't have that specific relationship to the online worlds so yeah that's really interesting um yeah I hadn't actually thought about that I like that that kind of slightly it slightly kind of changes a little bit of what I guess I thought I was noticing or something like that like I do think as a broader thing like because of the advent of social media and stuff like that there we do seem to be moving towards a weird kind of like modern version of Victorian times like things feel very prudish (laughs) I that is one of my favorite uh refrains we're still Victorians um, the way we think about children and families and culture and appropriate entertainment, we are very much still Victorians. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so interestingly, I won't let my children on social media, um, but they love horror films. They love Alien and mm. um, they love classic slashers like Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street and, you know, oh. things like that. I love that you're 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 giving them a good education I like that (laughs) um but no that's that's actually a really nice kind of more nuanced kind of perspective of what I was looking at but yeah that's and actually that kind of gives credence to the film that I actually watched it as part of the Soho Horror Virtual Festival we're all going to the World's Fair which is like a film that kind of really explores that whole creepypasta thing that's very now so yeah no that actually kind of gives more weight to that that's really interesting thank you for that That, that's going to change a lot of my thinking so thank you for that (laughs) insight I like that um but yeah that's really interesting I'm just like gonna have to go a different tangent so that I'll actually keep talking rather than my brain just thinking on a question (laughs) and just pondering and I'm like no we're doing a podcast you can't just sit here and think (laughs) no I really like that thank you um but yeah so I guess going as complete 180 direction then and as someone who has been a I guess a fan and lover of horror for some some, such a young age and for yourself like what are your favorite subgenres of horror and more in particularly why are they your favorites like why do you turn to these specific subgenres um hands down no question always my answer religious horror is my favorite Mm. I love possession movies. Um, The Exorcist is one of my comfort films. I can watch it over and over again. Um, I do a burlesque trapeze act as Reagan. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) That is fantastic. Um, So I I enjoy this media on a number of different levels. Um, And I, I, I think the reason I like religious horror so much is that I am an atheist, and mm-hmm. so the the religious concerns aren't really things that frighten me so much as the believers mm. will go to the extremes of, for example, exorcism when in the real space, it's like, well, maybe this person, you know, is having a mental health crisis and they need some medical intervention. Um, I think it's also really interesting to watch religious horror and know that there are people who very much so fear these things Mm. and fear these experiences. And so there's an element of realism that even though I don't share the belief, it grounds it a little bit more in a known experience. Um, Mm -hmm. I also super love horror comedies. Um, (laughs) I have two in particular that I always recommend to everyone. Um, The first one is One Cut of the Dead. 
Uh, Heard of it. Haven't seen it yet. I, it's on my list. <laughs> is It's the film that I recommend to theater nerds, to anyone mm. who has been involved in making movies or theater, like live entertainment of some sort. There's really going to be something enjoyable there. Um, and also, I'm really a fan of Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Oh, I adore that film. It is just perfect. <laughs> it is so endearing. And I love this, like, perfect non-toxic masculinity yes with their friendship and then this uh the the challenge of classism that goes Mm -hmm. into a lot of like classic horror tropes and just it's so good right like it's such like a complete tucker and dale tangent but it's like such (laughs) a just clever film because it subverts so many expectations as you said like as in you know it's in the exploitation subgenre but it's also going no no these aren't the villains these are just nice people and then also as you said you have this association of this type of person as being toxic masculine masculinity because that's almost the only imagery you get and it subverts that and there's so much going on that it's just brilliant but what I love about it is that like it like my favorite type of horror comedies are the ones that like if you stripped away the comedy the horror elements would still work as a horror film and it definitely leans into that but it's like that perfect blend because so much of the horror comes from the comedic elements like it's just brilliant I love that film but going back to the mention of the subgenre of like religious horror and stuff like that that's like a subgenre as well that myself like I'm intensely interested in because I'm from staunchly Catholic Ireland so we're like a country that still is like living under the shadow of the Catholic Church like we've tried to move forward but it still influenced so much of Irish culture and Irish society so yes I'm very much like you know I never know if I like to classify myself as like you know firmly atheist or more somehow atheist but spiritual I don't know because like my philosophy like being a philosophy nerd as well I definitely think I'm just like I don't know there could be something I have no idea it's not the I definitely don't think it's the god of the bible but who knows um but like the religious horror is something that definitely frightens me as well because usually I'm always like rooting for the demon because I'm just like no no they're they're clearly the hero of this story it's everyone else that's the villain (laughs) but uh, and I think like religious horror as a subgenre just like is one as well that is a perfect subgenre for I don't know examining like the nuances of like the human condition as well because like so much of human existence is like dictated by these religions and stuff like that so these films are good at unpacking those but stemming from this I love that you mentioned horror comedy as a favorite subgenre because there is this like type of belief among certain horror fans and like when I started this series I used to think it was like something that just existed online like it was just like a terminally online thing but as I've talked to more people for this series there's definitely people like out there in the real world who think like this as well but there is this weird kind of like attitude of someone will like say x film wasn't a good film because it didn't scare me and I want to know what you think about that do you think like that a horror film needs to be scary to be considered a quote-unquote good or effective horror film absolutely not 
Um, <laughs> the only film to ever scare me was Child's Play when I was eight years old. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never actually been afraid of a film that I've watched. I think good horror will inspire emotions and it mm-hmm. could be um, it's, it could be tension, it could be excitement, it could be surprise or unease or even humor. Um, I think the thing that makes a horror film really successful is that you are emotionally invested in what's going mm-hmm. on. Yes. Um, but it doesn't have to, to terrify you. You don't have to sleep with your, your lights on for it to have been a good horror movie. 100%. And like, I'm definitely firmly in that camp as well. Like, you know, it needs to elicit a response. Like, mm-hmm. like to me, that's like what classify, you know, what would be considered an effective horror film that it's elicit elicited a response from you. Whatever that response is, is moot. But once mm-hmm. you've had a response, like, because like to me, like if I'm watching a horror film and I'm like literally not feeling anything, then it's kind of like then it's just not succeeded because I should be feeling something, whether that's dread, terror, something. But if I'm not feeling anything, even like, you know, humor, then it's definitely just not succeeded. Not even just as a horror film, but as a film, because like stories are supposed to move us. So if we're not moved in some way, then, you know, it's like, what are you doing? Go back to the drawing board, please. Um, But I think a part of it stems from, like you said, child's play scared you when you were eight (laughs) for me the first uh, film that scared me and like this is like one of those things where I'm just like I always bring it up even like because I'm just like I refuse to feel ashamed but uh, the film that scared me was Casper a friendly ghost I asked my parents to take me out of the cinema because it was too scary (laughs) and (laughs) yeah I've I've certainly rewatched it since and I love it now but like at the time but I think that attitude of the film needs to be scary to be considered good mm-hmm. probably comes from the fact that so many people like when they watch their first horror film it scared them because they hadn't experienced a horror film before so it's almost like maybe it's like a type of like adrenaline rush or this type of thrill that you're seeking it again and mm-hmm. but because you've had that experience it's never like you're never going to have that first horror movie experience again like you know like even if you get scared from another film it'll be different it'll be kind of subpar in the same way that you know they say that you know your first heartbreak is always the hardest like it's the same thing it's like that first type of experience whatever it is will always like be heightened in your brain because like you have that physiological response that and one of my favorite um kind of non-fiction books is the body keeps the score which is more about trauma and stuff like that but it talks about how you know your body remembers what you've gone through and I think that when it comes to horror films and horror fans that's very true and that's probably why there is that feeling of like seeking that feeling that you can't get again Mm. and maybe similarly to this and I want to know what your perspective on this one is as well like I think it's the same type of attitude but maybe slightly different but there is also this subset of horror fan that's very much like there's no good horror anymore they don't make it like Mm -hmm. they used to Mm -hmm. and (laughs) I want to know what you think where that attitude might stem from um well well two thoughts Mm. so and, and and I think that they're related to both of these questions um 
I think my, my immediate answer to this question is the sense of nostalgia and how media is pushing nostalgia mm. as a, a primary, like, capitalistic concern. Um, and I think too much investment in nostalgia kind of increases fear of change. And so mm -hmm. people don't want new. They don't want change. They're afraid of losing what they've already enjoyed and what they've loved. And, you know, I think that's kind of a shame because exploration and changes and development don't take away from what you already have. You still have mm -hmm. that media. You still have that content. You might find additional media and content that you enjoy. You also, it may not be for you. Um, you know, I am someone who does not enjoy uh, torture porn. And mm -hmm. so I saw the first Saw movie and it was just not for me. And there was a long period of time where I essentially wasn't seeing much horror because that's what was marketed, at least here in the U.S., mm. what I had access to. And so I wasn't watching a lot of horror films any longer. Um, but I think, too, that and this I think it's related. It's off the cuff. And so I'm still working on this. <laughs> um, but I wonder if these attitudes come from. The, the perspective and the demographics of the audiences, people mm -hmm. who are seeing it, with whom do you identify in a film? And why are you watching a film? I am a queer woman who has always felt on the outside. And so I'm rooting for the monsters. Yes. Right? <laughs> I, my favorite slasher is Nightmare on Elm Street. I love Freddy Krueger and I love him because he is queer and campy and, mm. you know, violating these normative spaces. And, you know, I love horror for empowering people and demographics and ideas that are not normally empowered. Mm -hmm. and so you know i love possessed reagan and i love freddy krueger and i think midsummer is a very happy story um but i think perhaps if you identify more normatively you know yes. it it might kind of challenge your appreciation of it and, and what you enjoy in that film Oh, I'm just like, I'm just like fireworks going off in my head <laughs> right now because everything you said was just so like beautifully eloquent and just like <laughs> resound like I'm just like nodding along like yes that's oh fantastic um and like there's so many like areas I can go now and it's just brilliant thank you um but yes I think it's like they're definitely related and two thoughts that are very related because I think it's both this resistance to change it's like not wanting to let go of what you have nostalgia for and then also and like this is very much my belief it's this attitude of I'm a cisgender straight white man and I'm no longer the focus of the film and like I think it's like a bit of like a I don't know it's like almost like a crybaby throwing the pram like throwing your toys out of the pram attitude of kind of just like you know I'm no longer the focus of everything and it's just like buddy sit down and shut up you've been the focus for long enough like let other people have a bit of the pie um and also just open up your, you know, go to the buffet. There's so much more interesting perspectives. Yeah. There's yes. like, you know, your life will be enriched by opening up to other perspectives. Mm -hmm. But I love what you said as well about, you know, being a queer woman that you've always related to the outsider and the monsters. Mm -hmm. And like one of my one of the statements that I'm very much like, you know, a firm believer of is like horror is inherently queer full stop like it always has been Absolutely. and like 
it, especially like you know even you know if you particularly think of like you know films during the Hayes Code era where those films couldn't be explicit but they were being made by queer people so if you're queer you know where to look and that's why as you said whether it's Dracula the werewolf Frankenstein's monster or more modern iterations like Freddy Krueger and Chucky mm-hmm. and certain characters there's these characters mm-hmm. that you relate to because they challenge norms and they are like queer in so many ways. And yeah, like a heart, like I think it's just, there is like, it's this resistance to change, but it's also not wanting to accept that horror is inherently queer. Cause I feel like horror is now, it's no longer subtextual, it's text. Yeah. And some yes. people don't like that. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, we, I relate this to Tucker and Dale and I relate this to this conversation. Mm. I really enjoyed um, the Fear Street. Yes. I loved it. It was, it was beautiful. You have, you know, prominent queer characters. You have this really delightful, once again, non-toxic masculinity mm-hmm. being represented. You have this concept of, you know, a past that is still haunting us and why is it haunting us and why us? And just, you know, it, it, it's a really good picture of kind of all of these changes and these ideas because people who are resistant to change, they're not just resistant to change in media, it's cultural change. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's, you know, it's all the, the Twitter hullabaloo that we're seeing about <laughs> casting right now. It's mm. cast and diversity and all these popular shows and kind of accepting that the world is perhaps larger than your neighborhood. Yes, so much. Yes. And yeah like just yeah it is like this very small narrow-minded attitude but I like how you say that thing about you know it's this resistance to change like cultural change and like it's this like again like horror has is inherently queer but also horror is inherently political because I don't think you can separate the two Mm -hmm. and like horror as a genre like which is why horror fans we love to return to it Mm -hmm. is the best genre for commenting on the society that it exists in so if you look at a horror film from any year that it's made and any kind of generation it's made it is reflecting that time period. It's like a time capsule. Mm-hmm. Like that's what the societal views were at the time. And the film can either be like trying to hold them up or it's criticizing them in a nuanced way. And I think it's now the horror films that are coming out now are reflecting the fact that society has in some ways moved forward and progressed forward. So it that's is, right. it's like, we're trying, it's, you know, it's reflecting that. And that's also causing this, you know, like negative like reaction to it and like Mm -hmm. I just think you know like I'm like you know like I'm very much a believer I'm just like those people aren't horror fans like that's what I think like you know in a like you know in a way like you know if you're refusing to kind of actually like horror fans want to see new horror like that's my belief you know regardless of whether you're the focus of it new horror is better like you know we're in this golden age of horror because like it feels like every week there's a new horror movie or more than one movie like whether you're thinking studio pictures but also independent horror there's so many stories coming out now and I just can't understand people who say that that's a bad thing (laughs) (laughs) well and it's it's too there's almost like a defense like horror has to be if I'm a horror fan then I have to like all horror 
Mm. So if I don't like something, then it's not real horror. And it, it's mm. it's like this comic book guy like view of the world. Like if you're a fan, you should be able to name every single person and all the directors and all this. And it's you don't have to. You can just like I don't like torture porn. I don't like the Saw series and and that kind of genre. And that's okay. They yeah. can exist for people who like them. Um, I think you mentioned on Twitter that you don't like The Shining. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and, and I do. As as you know, someone I I really love haunted house films, and so The Shining is one of those movies that I can put on in the background at all times, and that's okay. We can both be horror fans and one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have to defend your your identity in this kind of not you specifically, but people. Yeah, no, one hundred percent genre. Um, there's so much there and it's okay if you only like a piece of it that can still be your piece exactly and oh yes that's so much like and I don't like maybe it's something that is like being fueled by social media and like because like so so much of social media is about like reactionary you know algorithms and bullshit Mm -hmm. but like it's weird like it always like bugs me out that like someone will be like say there's a new horror film that's come out or someone's like had their first time watching a film will be like oh I had such a good time with this film I loved it you just know that automatically there's always going to be someone underneath it going oh you shouldn't like it that's a shit film and trying Mm -hmm. to tear down that joy but conversely someone will say this film didn't work for me and someone will try to turn them around and go maybe you didn't get it and I'm just like that's like a really like it almost like feels like a bit of like an ableist attitude because it's kind mm-hmm. of just like insulting intelligence or something like that to say, oh, maybe you just didn't get it. And I'm just like, people can dislike or not like me, you know, or enjoy media or films. But my approach is always like, just let them have that opinion. Like it, their opinion, you know, whether they love it or whether they hate it, that doesn't take away from your take, you know, experience of the film, likewise with The Shining. And it's funny, like, I love Haunted House and Ghost Story films, but The Shining as a film just didn't work for me for whatever reason. I can't put it, you know, I don't know. I've I'm watched not going to ask you to defend it either. Yeah, That's exactly. Okay. And like, and I, I loved Dr. Sleep. So I don't know. It's so bizarre. Very like, good. I like that. Like, yeah, it's yeah. just, and like, that's the thing. Sometimes films just don't work for someone like Mm -hmm. and like it's weird like and this is something that I'm actually going to be I'm working on a piece for my website blog like a written piece and maybe Mm -hmm. I'll try and ship it out but like I feel like my understanding of my own queerness and my gender identity has helped me recontextualize my understanding of how I enjoy horror films Mm -hmm. because like a film like The Shining it's held up as this like bastion of horror cinema yeah. so I've like because I, it didn't work for me because I didn't like it I felt like there was something wrong with me as a horror fan because like if you're a horror fan you should love this film whether it's Texas Chainsaw Mass any of the classics you're supposed mm-hmm. to love it so if you don't mm-hmm. you're failing in being a horror fan and so yeah it was something I beat myself up about a lot even though it didn't work but then since I understood myself as a person through like understanding who I am gender wise it's made me realize that no that no fuck that (laughs) you know it it doesn't matter um but yeah so that's like something I haven't really put like the full blink thought process on but it's something Mm -hmm. I'm working on written piece wise but complete now another I'm sorry go ahead I was gonna say along the lines of what you were saying 
I really, I, I'm not a fan of this idea of highbrow horror. Mm. Or at least the label of highbrow horror. There's a, there's a kind of classism to it. Um, there's a kind of, of intellectual expectation of it. Mm. And I'm a media scholar and I'm a media scholar of, you know, quote unquote, junk media. I, I analyze comic books. I'm a cosplay scholar. Mm. Um, Gothic literature was the junk media of its time, even though we see them as classics now. Um, so I'm always going to analyze everything I consume. That's who I am. I don't think you have to in order to enjoy horror media. Mm-hmm. And to call something highbrow suggests that you have to think really deeply and intellectually about something when you should just be allowed to enjoy it and, and kind of consume it as is natural for you. 100%. And like, you know, I, I get in my head, I'm equating highbrow with quote unquote elevated horror. Because like, <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, like, um, but I think it does, like, now that terms to me, like, has it always been associated with coming from this stance of, I don't want to admit that I like horror films, so I'm going to create this new term for this film I like. And it, yeah, it's that intellectual superiority of kind of like, again, viewing horror as the junk media. So as in, in your head, horror is the schlocky B-horror movies, that's what horror is, or the torture porns, or whatever it is, something that usually has a more extreme or gory nature brings it down. So therefore, that's what horror is. Mm -hmm. What you like, even though it is horror, is somehow different and better. And yes. Yes. <laughs> but yes. So <laughs> but no, that actual point, like that's actually an interesting point about, you know, you shouldn't have to necessarily critically engage with what you're consuming. And that's something that I'm always like, I don't know where like I think it's very a very nuanced topic. Cause like these two questions are kind of very linked for me so like I'll probably like bring them in similarly but for example like there's one topic which I think everyone who is a fan of horror media this question is something that we kind of have to I guess reconcile with in some way but it's the whole feelings around censorship about Mm -hmm. like you know are there lines around what's acceptable to be portrayed on screen represented or should art just be allowed to be art and is everything permissible and I think like you can't answer you can't tackle that question without being someone who critically engages with the media you're consuming like and then spinning off from that because I do think is very related to censorship but you know the whole which again is something that unfortunately a lot of horror fans again have to reconcile with but it's the entire topic of art versus artist like again I think if we like I don't think we have to have a hard line of you know someone doesn't you know people have to critically engage with media because if you take a hard stance that leans towards fascism and we don't like that but if we don't like encourage people to turn all turn on their critical brain then you're gonna go down that route of like someone going I don't care that a problematic person made this I'm just gonna watch it and it gets murky so I want to know what you like I know that they're kind of two big topics I've 
bunched together so answer it whichever way you wish but I just want to know what you think about that on the kind of censorship and art versus artist um so censorship you know I I have a very clear answer to this one Mm -hmm. no governing body should ever be allowed to determine what media is available to the public Mm -hmm. um and this is in part because concepts of acceptability are widely varied Mm. we're kind of talking about queer identities and perhaps non-normative identities And as such, you know, my life as a lesbian is unacceptable to certain demographics. Mm. And, you know, today, you know, um, in the U.S., there are certainly groups of people who think that my life is unacceptable and should not be portrayed in media. And this is, you know, cooking dinner with my family, sending my kids to school, Mm. the way that I live, you know, is unacceptable. And so, of course you know, that gets murky. And so the easy answer for me is no, no one body, no one person or one body of people should determine what is acceptable. Um, I do have personal limits. Um, Even the fictionalized representation of the sexual abuse of minors is too far for me. Yeah. Um, You know, as, as a person, maybe this is me as a mother, maybe this is just me, you know, as a human, I get very concerned about the actors, even in those portrayals. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I really, I've liked seeing the evolution of um, intimacy coordinators on films yes, and kind of that awareness and consent being brought into the film industry. And I think that that's really a powerful thing. Um, I'm not going to say, you know, what is appropriate to film and what isn't, but I'm not going to consume that media. That is a hard line for me. 100%. Yes. I, I completely (laughs) think. No. Yeah. Do you want to continue with where you were your next line of thought? Oh, I I was going to talk about death of the author following that. Like, yeah, no. Um, perfect. Um, yeah, no, uh, go into it. I'll, I'll edit this little weird bit out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so just as, as I'm a firm believer, you know, against, formalized censorship I think everyone should be able to determine what media is appropriate for them and that's fine there's nothing Mm -hmm. you have to see there's nothing you have to read Um, but no one should be allowed to tell someone else you know what they can consume Um, I'm also a firm believer in death of the author Mm -hmm. Um, and that my perspective is really informed by the fact that I have spent my entire life studying uh, British literature and they're all sexist and racist and terrible people. Mm. Um, I love Oscar Wilde. He would hate me if he were alive today. Um, he, I would be an object of ridicule to him. And yet I named my children after the picture of Dorian Gray. Um, mm. You know, there's, there is a separation there between a work and a person, I think. Um, and also the understanding that we are going to approach media from our individual perspectives. Mm-hmm. We have um, we have different uh, traumas, different interests, different understandings, and our experience of media is always going to be as individual as you as we are. And yeah. so, no creator can anticipate every reaction to a film. That doesn't excuse a maker from being a terrible person. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that there are different issues. I think we need to increase perhaps social responsibility. 
um, for, for, you know, particular behaviors and beliefs and, and things like that. Um, but, you know, I think media is an individual experience and that I view my media in recognition of the creator, but not reliant on my understanding of the creator. Mm, oh, again, so many wonderful points being made, like brilliant. No, thank you. Um, but yes, um, like I think specifically when it comes to like the kind of like death of the author, art versus artist topic, mm-hmm. like I very much like, you know, fall down like because I have this debate with myself all the time and it's one of the reasons why I asked this question for this series because I can get other perspectives and see if my you know I can find somewhere where I'll actually plant a flag but I think it's such a nuanced topic but Mm -hmm. I tend to usually always return to there's definitely a difference between engaging with a piece of art as a piece of art and commercially supporting a problematic creator you know so like for example you know I always like to say you know I'm not going to necessarily judge another queer or trans person who is able to find beauty in the world of Harry Potter like you know those world those works that world was like so impactful for so many people so Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna you know if someone still is able to find love I'm not gonna judge them for that but if they're going to then go, you know what, I'm going to buy the new Harry Potter game. That's different because that's actually making a commercial decision to kind of be like this person's problematic behavior doesn't bother me enough to part with my money. Like, you know, so I think there's a difference between art is art and I'm going to appreciate it. Mm -hmm. And we're still in a capitalist world and I'm going to support (laughs) this person. Like, yeah. a horror related example we were um you know at the top of our talk we were talking about uh children's um horror media and what mm. access to um one of my children is particularly invested in five nights at freddy's mm. um and they they love the games they're very excited because a film is coming out um and we're a cosplaying family and they've asked me to cosplay with them and i've refused i won't I will, I will enable their indulgence in the media that is meaningful to them. Mm-hmm. I will not participate because the creator has been vocally supportive of Donald Trump. Mm. And the way I, I see it and the way I've explained it to my child is I will not personally support that property because in giving money to that property i'm essentially giving money to trump and i try not to do that on purpose <laughs> like i i'm not saying that like every director and every actor of every film you know i go out to see is entirely in line with my political and personal beliefs but when i know there's a direct connection i'm going to avoid that i'm yeah. going to avoid supporting that connection 100 and like i think actually that's a a good kind of clarifying point as he said like you know as far as we because like unfortunately unfortunately in our capitalist hellscape of a world and Hollywood being a business Mm -hmm. like it almost like you'd never be able to actually watch any movies or engage with any media if you took a hard stance of I'm not going to support any problematic people like for example take Harvey Weinstein for example he is a despicable piece of shit and Mm -hmm. deserves to go down as history as that Mm -hmm. and nobody should ever sing his praises but 
companies he worked for were involved with creating so many classic horror films. If you take a stance of, I won't support anything that Harvey Weinstein has touched directly or indirectly, then that's basically kind of going most of horror history I'm not going to watch. So that's the screen films out the door. That's all these classic films because the studio he was involved with made it. So it gets murky. And I think actually circling back in a different way to the whole death of the author question and can we separate it? Mm -hmm. Like if we take films specifically, like, you know, as a piece of art, like films are collaborative projects. So it's not just one person that's making it. Now, obviously there is auteur theory. So that's slightly different, but the bigger budget you go, the more people involved. And if it's a studio picture, who knows like what actual product we're getting on screen is what was the filmmaker's intention, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's where it's like, as you said, a filmmaker can't, you know, plan for every single individual's reaction or response to a film. Sometimes those reaction and responses could be because of something the filmmaker wasn't even responsible for. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, so it's a very kind of like, I think that's why I don't think we have to critically engage with the media we consume, mm-hmm. but I do think it should be, I know, nudgely encouraged. <laughs> I I think that's you know a little bit what I'm saying like I think that there should be cultural yes uh, responses to so it's not necessarily I can't watch Scream yeah but I think that people who you know break laws or or you know violate trusts and contracts should be held you know responsible Mm -hmm. in some way um, and I can still watch this movie and think that, you know, this person, you know, the screenwriter or the director or the actor, you know, whoever it is, yeah. has done something wrong and should be held responsible for, for doing something wrong or it should be publicly acknowledged that they've done something wrong. Um, I think when we come to Harvard, too, you know, there is, uh, I always come back to this concept of um, queer retrosexuality mm. and uh, this kind of like queer reclaiming of something, a time, a space, mm. a style that uh, was traditionally held against us as queer people, but we kind of like take it and make it our own. Um, mm. Shahani kind of uses this example of like the mid-century aesthetic and like queer people's kind of like um taking back you know this pinup and this greaser and this like 1950s you know particular i think of it as 1950s americana Mm. um but like taking that and making it queer and making it part of our queer representation and and we can acknowledge that this is a really harmful ugly past you know um Mm. There, you know, this was a time where in the United States, you know, you had to wear a certain number of um, articles of clothing uh, according to the gender that you were assigned at birth, right? Mm. And it was it was criminally, you know, held against you if you didn't. And so, going back and reclaiming that style as a queer identity can be um, really liberating. And I think we can do the same thing with you know, horror as a genre and, and films that we like in particular. And, you know, there may be, you know, there may be fans of, of Harry Potter who are essentially queering the text, Mm. their interaction with the text. And at that point, death of the author becomes really useful because it's no longer about this 
this person who has said and advocated for these terrible things. It's about the queer person's interaction and analysis of this text and what it means to them and how that consumption kind of rewrites the story about it. Mm. Oh, like I'm just no, no, I love one thing. I love tangents. They're the best things ever. But also it's you you just have such a fantastic way of breaking down these really big concepts. So just I'm just in you know, just I'm just genuinely in awe of everything you're saying. It's so cool. And I'm just like, how did I get such an amazing person to come onto my little podcast? So thank you. Um but yes, you said so many great things there. And I love that. I'd never actually heard that term, queer retrosexuality. I've never heard that before. So thank you for introducing that to me. It's, it's a book, actually, oh! um, on queer retrosexualities. So nice. There's also um, another one. It's Munoz's uh, Disidentification. And they're kind thank of, you. There are these really great queer theory texts about kind of like approaching and dealing with and associating with like the mainstream and the normative and kind of rewriting your own queer space time identity I love that I'll have to seek those out that's really cool um but yes there is like like just like as you said queering the text or you know just queering the media and making it something new and is like such like an act of liberation and it is really amazing and it's really cool and that again I think it just stems back to horror is inherently queer because of the fact that like you know even if it's not textually there it's a queer person can pick up on it and like expand it and explore it and that's why I'm also one of those like you know people who's kind of like I'm all for remakes of classic horror properties because, Mm -hmm. you know, give me like, you know, take a property like, you know, the Halloweens, even though they're kind of getting a rendition now, but so, Mm -hmm. but maybe even like one, like a Friday the 13th or even like a Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm -hmm. I'd love to see like an openly queer creator and what their perspective Mm -hmm. of a story is like that or a person of color who could also be queer, like just different mm-hmm. perspectives and mm-hmm. their reinterpretations of existing stories. Like that just is really cool and fantastic. Mm-hmm. Like, um, like even for example, 2021's Naya Dacosta's Candyman. I thought yes. that film was yes. just brilliant. And it was like, yes. I, I rewatch yes. it so much. It's so yes. good. And, um, yes. but again, that's just an example of like, you know, give these stories to the people who can enrich it and make it more mm-hmm. like and not necessarily alter or change it but just enrich it give it more life and yeah that's an example of how to do it perfectly but um yes it's i just love that story of career artificial boundaries mm. you know that, yeah. that's really what it is it it doesn't have to be restricted to this one tiny corner this one tiny film this one idea you know, you can broaden it and, and breathe additional life into it. And again, the original is still there. If that's your favorite, if that's what you like best, that's okay. You yeah. know, but you can also offer more if you kind of break apart, you know, the fences that we built around these properties. 100%. And actually, that's actually, it's not a question I've prepared, but it's just, as you said, it, it's kind of popped into my head. Like the original is always there, but I think that's also a firm argument for, you know why people should be fighting more for physical media and 
preservation of media because Mm -hmm. if all our media goes the streaming route and it's something that's just digital then Mm -hmm. those original classics could technically no longer exist if a studio makes the decision that we want this new version to be the one that everyone returns to Mm -hmm. they could essentially decide like look what warner brothers did with the upcoming batgirl film they just Mm -hmm. decided hey we're just going to delete this and it won't ever see the light of day (laughs) and that's annoyed me to no end because it was also going to be a very queer batgirl film (laughs) and it's just yeah that's a tangent but it's a good tangent. I will say I own a physical copy of the Star Wars where Han Solo shoots first. And it is important to preserve those. Um, and kind of to our earlier conversation, too, I look at buying physical media as a way of voting with my dollars. Mm, um, yes. Even if I don't ever technically watch the copy that I own in purchasing this, I've, I've told the industry that I want more of this content. Mm-hmm. that I liked this content that I you know that they should invest more in this kind of thing which 100%. you know feels like it might be harder to do with streaming I don't know maybe yeah. that's ignorance on my part but no like no I know what you mean like um well especially because like so much of like the big streamers like you know the Netflixes and stuff like that like so mm-hmm. they're the way that they dictate what's popular and stuff like that so much of it is like behind their big iron gates that they don't want anyone into so when they make these decisions to like say cancel series and stuff like that um you don't know like what number like what the viewership was like and stuff Mm -hmm. like that so you don't know was it like you know one viewer away from the what they needed to be renewed like you never know and they won't give us that information that makes it more frustrating but yeah I think like and also for example, like um, I'm I'm also I'm on my second rewatch of Neil Gaiman's Sandman series on Netflix, mm-hmm. which I'm just loving. It's like so just perfect. And again, an inherently queer media. And I love that mm-hmm. it's just bombastic about it. Um, but like Neil Gaiman has been very vocal and active on Twitter talking about how he needs people, you know, people need to watch it through all in one go and stuff like that, because that's how Netflix works. They dictate on how popular it is initially how many people binge it if it gets enough bingeable watches then they go okay we'll give it another season Mm -hmm. and like I think the point I'm kind of making is I guess these streamers do obviously have some way of dictating what like as in people paying with their dollars of dictating Mm -hmm. what people want to see it still feels like it's like behind this kind of like weird murky cloud and we don't really know whereas with physical media it's very much I want a physical version of this please give it to me and I'll pay for it Mm -hmm. and like that's why we're seeing like you know I love that there's um you know whether it's like you know is it sight and sound and there's deep you know criterion and there's all these different Mm -hmm. like kind of media preservationists who are giving new life to classic films like for example I just saw that one of my favorite favorite films of all time Dog Soldiers Mm -hmm. has been given a new physical release and played at Fright Fest like which is so cool because that's a Mm -hmm. film that's underrated and now it's getting a new life so I just think that 
those fans who are complaining about new horror films that are coming out they are resistant to change they Mm -hmm. don't want remakes of any kind I think those fans should be the ones that are front and center fighting for media preservation and physical media because if you're not doing that then I don't believe your argument I don't think you actually care about the point you're making one of my absolute favorite horror films of all times uh, was a made-for-TV horror film from the 70s called Satan's School for Girls. Hmm. Um, and I... <laughs> in my corner of the world, we used to have Tower Records. And Tower Records had um, big, giant bins of movies for just a couple of dollars. Hmm. And it would be like four like B and C horror movies packaged together and it was like Flesh Feast and Into the Dungeon and like all these really ridiculous titles. Um and you know in one of these packs of four movies that I bought for a couple of bucks there's this 1970s boarding school Satan horror movie and it's an absolute delight. Um it was remade in like the the 90s or maybe the early 2000s and I cannot find the original 70s one online anywhere Mm. thankfully I have my hard copy (laughs) so (laughs) I still have this media Um, but I tell people about it and no one can ever find it Um, and so yeah it it I I feel like I'm a keeper of this film now because I do have it and I could share it and you know it's not dead as long as I have my copy but we do I think need to to be media hoarders a little bit we need to kind of take control yeah no 100% and like I think linked to as you said being media hoarders and media preservationists I think very linked to that is you know the cinema like you know if we want the cinema as a actual like physical space to continue Mm -hmm. to be a thing that's where we need to put our money into it when you know people and I think that's the one thing horror fans are the best for that out of any other type of genre like horror fans are the best for like they'll be like you know you know i saw the poster for this film or i saw the trailer it looks like absolute dog shit but it's horror i'm gonna go support it anyway because horror doesn't get this like the life in the cinema that other tentpole films do and i love that about horror fans that we will like seek it out because you know sometimes you can be surprised you know you can be like going in with zero expectations and blown away like you know and that's the best thing um because like you know I'm as like as yourself probably is as well but I'm like a massive like comic geek nerd I love the comics so I'm a fan of the MCU films to a point as well but I can also acknowledge that the MCU films are absolutely terrible for cinema right now because like Disney will go the only way you get to show this film is if you put it on 20 times a day in every screen (laughs) it's just like really (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I uh, I wrote my my dissertation on um, Batman villains and Gothic villains. Mm, wow! Actually, so I'm I'm a DC, but also DC makes terrible movies. Mm. So I know it's yeah. There's I'm, some really there's some gems, but but, you know, it, it's but not their the industry. Their animation is 
their animated yeah. films, yes. their animated shows is yes. that's like, you know, they definitely win it in that park and better video games as well from my experience too, as far as I can well, tell. I'm in it for the villains and Batman villains are just <sighs> so good and mm. so queer. And yes. oh, I love them. Yep, definitely. There, there's definitely an le- extra element of it. I'm very much in that. I just love it all. Like, give mm-hmm. give all the nerdy stuff to me. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I love. Like, <laughs> I'm just like loving these tangents. I just thank you for <laughs> thank you for just giving in to my love for tangents. Um, but just like you know, I love DC because it is more fantastical because mm-hmm. it's technically not set in the real world because they have their fictional cities and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I love how it is more fantastical, which means it can lean into being more camp and more queer and mm-hmm. also more dark. Like DC definitely has much darker storylines. Whereas I also love Marvel because it's kind of like, hey, what if this was actually happening in our real world? And it makes it more grounded, but it mm-hmm. also their dark storylines have a more kind of human element in a way. And it's in, like, I love them both. They do really interesting things. And I'm just like, such like, I'm just such a, like, <laughs> whenever someone asks me, like, what's your favorite horror film or what's your favorite subgenre? And my mm-hmm. answer is always, how dare you ask me a polyamorous um, gender queer bisexual slut which is my favorite <laughs> because I refuse to choose one thing and it's the same when it comes <laughs> it seems like give me DC give me Marvel give me image okay. give me boom give me it all right. horror give me it like yes. I don't Star Wars more. and I Star Trek more. yes I want the buffet I don't want one portion yeah. I want the entire thing <laughs> I love it beautiful so (laughs) thank you (laughs) um so I think that kind of brings us to a nice kind of like two kind of like last kind of closing off topics and the first one um and I'm I'd say you've probably already given some of the films to this question but if there's more that come to mind but for yourself like what are your go-to comfort horror films if you've had like a shit day or a shit week which films do you turn to because you know you're just gonna have a good time with it uh the exorcist mm-hmm. um if you will include it i would say the craft because that was really oh 100 yeah, anyone who says was... the craft is not horror i yeah. you know go in the bin <laughs> um you can't go wrong with scream mm-hmm uh and you know those are those are in part you know showing my age I think (laughs) what was what was formidable for me um it's you know it's the craft and and um oh I keep meaning to go back and watch the ring Mm, the American version or the Japanese version I've only seen the American version I should see both but the American version came out when I was in eighth grade I think Mm. um when I was about 13 years old and I remember it being a really big social deal and it's the Mm. first horror movie I remember being like a really big deal um anyway that's not comfort or favorite um yeah (laughs) exorcist uh scream the craft those are the kinds of things I'm going for 
I love it. A nice uh, selection and also like two uh, Nev Campbell ones as well, which is just perfect. <laughs> Great. And um, I like it. Um, I want to be for Rosa Bulk, though. Like that's, mm, that's oh, like, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm just like, no, I'm not going to go down a thirsty tangent. Not right now. Um, but actually kind of link to that because that question actually about, you know, would you include the craft? Like I very much fall into the Mike Munzer of evolution of horror camp of everything is horror like you know I'm just like I will find a reason to classify something as a horror film and because like I again I refuse to choose I refuse to limit myself and so I just want to know for yourself though like do you have like kind of clear delineation lines on one side as horror on the other isn't or is it more fluid and flux for you I think um Horror is, I actually wrote a really good answer to this. Um, and now I can't find my answer in my notes. <gasps> okay, so horror is anything that includes an extraordinary threat. Mm. Something that is outside of a normal experience. And that could be a serial killer. That could be someone, you know, suddenly calling you on the phone and coming into your house to stab you. That could be demonic possession or a dream demon coming to get you. It is a threat that is outside of our normal experience. And whether or not that is something that is frightening to you, I don't Mm -hmm. think necessarily matters. What matters is that it's, it's extra. It's it's outside, but also in addition to. Hmm, I like that. That's a nice classification, and that can like that's a very lovely broad scope, and it allows so many things to come into it. Like you know, because I like I never understand people who are very limiting and reductive with their categories mm-hmm. but then again that's because I'm just like fuck binaries like you know <laughs> like I'm just like dismantle it all queer everything and it makes things more interesting um but I think like you know so when it comes to like even say subgenres, like I think if you're yeah. going to get to the point of trying to like say this fits in this specific subgenre or trying to create subgenre after subgenre after subgenre and I'm just like yes it can help for like sometimes critical analysis of a film but at the end of the day for maybe just enjoying horror just say I just like horror like I love horror like there are some types I love more but I love horror and you don't have to try and categorize everything don't go the Aristotle route nothing has everything doesn't have to be categorized you know (laughs) but when um I teach Shakespeare I would teach you know Aristotelian you know drama and like mm. and Shakespeare breaks every rule mm-hmm. and we love him for it so yeah yes we we like a rule breaker in here yeah. we like a queer rule breaker yes, yes. please give Break give down us the boundaries 100 <laughs> percent. yes um but yeah like <laughs> it was actually something that popped up in one of my conversations with a different guest when I was kind of having this conversation like about you know what do you classify as horror stuff like that I'm just like thinking as someone who is very much like innately and um, polyamorous and non-monogamous most rom-coms are horror movies to me because they revolve around <laughs> monogamy and love triangles so like that like you know I watch those and they're horrifying <laughs> I think yeah I'm going to stick with my definition, but I add to that, like, things can be horrific 
and not be her. Yes. For me, <laughs> personally, like, there are things that are just absolutely horrific and it's not, yeah. Yeah. Like not to challenge your definition. I like that. <laughs> but... Yeah. But a uh, <laughs> brief little mini tangent. But yes, very much so. I, th- I think... As you said, I, I like that as well. Certain things can be horrific to the watcher, but not mm-hmm. necessarily classified as horror films. <laughs> but but um, I'm very much like in the camp of like, as a person, just like, if I can find, like, you know, if I can like justify like, a, like just a sequence of a film, I can be like, oh, that's a set piece that follows a trope. Therefore, the entire film is a horror film, yeah. <laughs> even if the rest I- of it isn't. <laughs> I can get behind that. Absolutely. I can support that. <laughs> Brilliant. But um <laughs> thank you. Thank you for indulging me. Um <laughs> but to bring us to our last kind of question, which is where I try and like to round things off. And I just want to know like what are your you know, are you feeling hopeful about the future of horror? Like, do you think we're gonna continue to break more ground? We're gonna continue to be more queer and just kind of be more progressive and diverse or do you feel that there might be some form of like a rebound and a reaction to I guess where we are culturally at the moment like what do you think are you hopeful for horror I think horror is our rebound and reaction I think Mm. that as you know uh normative culture becomes increasingly more restrictive we're going to try and push more boundaries within horror because it is the genre that best allows us to do so um and frankly i'm very excited to go to the movies this fall i i this week i need to go see bodies 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 Mm -hmm. i want to go see the invitation um i'm very excited for the menu that's coming out um, you know, I, I think we have some things to look forward to. And I think in particular, um, indie horror is really mm-hmm. going to give us a lot of gifts. Um, I don't know that that major industry is really going to push the way that we want it to. But I do think that there are a lot of opportunities in the future. 100%. And what a nice uh, message of hope uh, to, la- to <laughs> land on. So before I let you go, where can people find you and support your work? Um, well, I am a Washington, D.C. based performer. Um, you can find me all over uh, social media as London St. Juniper, ST um, Saint or London St. J. And yeah, find me on Twitter as PhD Pinup or Instagram and Facebook as London. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining me. And to my guests, keep your eyes and ears peeled for future releases in my Why Horror series.